Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, children's TV. Could the UK be serving kids better? Ofcom wants to find out. Amazon banks big on a new Lord of the Rings adaptation. Will the project help their management woes? Our panel discuss. Plus, we run down the big winners, or should that be small winners at the APAs? We debate the pros and cons of net neutrality, but in a fun way, I promise. And we mourn the end of Soho perhaps. Uh, and in the media quiz, we prick the social media bubble. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today is broadcast consultant Paul Robinson. Paul, which far-flung place do you arrive at us today from? Oh, Canary Wharf a long way. Gosh, it's taken oh. at least half an hour. Did you at least experiment with flying from there? I did, I did. But uh, <laughs> even City Airport doesn't quite deliver it. And joining Paul is the director of the Edinburgh International TV Festival. It's Lisa Campbell. Hello, Lisa. Hello. So it's December. Presumably now, at least now, is the time where things are a little bit foot off the pedal, aren't they, for Edinburgh? Oh, sadly not. Um, well, we are actually very busy organising a panel debate for next week. Oh, go on. So we're looking at harassment and bullying obviously there's been a lot of stories on the topic lately and I think what's become starkly apparent when putting this panel and survey together is abuses of power are not restricted to Hollywood so I can actually give you an exclusive preview of our survey which we're going to be feeding into the panel next week so exclusive Paul I'm looking forward to it. No, I'm very excited, but seriously, I think it's important. I mean, I think from what we want to get out of the panel is obviously it's a a hugely hot topic, but really recognising the fact that lots of small indies don't have HR. Do people understand their rights? What do they do if they are um, experiencing this kind of behaviour? We've got a psychologist, we've got HR expertise, so really we're hoping to do something that's quite practical and supportive. So The exclusive is? The exclusive is. um, (laughs) You've raised my journalistic angles, I'm waiting. (laughs) We ask questions like, you know, do people feel confident in their knowledge of what constitutes bullying and sexual harassment? And 92% do feel that they understand that. They understand their rights. 92% say they do. But very few are exploiting those rights. So 72% have not reported any incidents, despite three quarters of our survey of 300 people have experienced some kind of bullying at work, but they're just not reporting it. And that's really down to fear of losing their jobs and negative repercussions within their career. Lots of freelancers just saying, obviously, worried about working again. 
And then around 40% saying they don't have faith in their employer once they do report. So, and this um, is people who work in telly, is it? It is, yes. So it's it's mostly in independent production companies that have responded and freelancers. So it's about 41% indies and 28% freelancers and then 15% broadcasters. Some of the things that have, have been singled out, we, we've asked for people's open responses And, you know, someone's written here, TV is a fun, lively and sociable industry. People are encouraged to work as a team and be over familiar, often spending long, unsociable hours together in sometimes testing situations. The plus side on location is a friends rather than work mentality. But I do think more provision and guidelines need to be put in place to remind all crew, whether they're for a week or a year, that there are certain behaviours expected at work. Having worked in retail, finance, travel and hospitality prior to my move into TV, never have I been in an industry that is so unregulated on so many levels. I think the other really interesting thing that's come out of it is the power abuse between commissioners and independent production companies and producers. Someone's put, I'm concerned about the culture of bullying from broadcasters towards producers. The very worst behaviour I have witnessed in the industry has come from commissioning editors to the senior production team. We operate in a buyer's market and indies fear speaking up to broadcasters about this behaviour in case it damages our business. That's really interesting because, I mean, just as an outsider, I'd sort of think, well, is is that bullying? I mean, the, the commissioner is the more powerful person in the room, aren't they? So that's just their natural dynamic. I guess it's when does it become bullying? That's the question, isn't it? Because clearly the power sits with the commissioners. They've got the money to spend. And of course, the Indies all competing and they want that commission. So of course, there's always going to be a, a dynamic there. But at what point is it bullying? Bullying must be either sexual innuendo or sexual behaviour or going beyond what is reasonable in persuading someone of your point of view because we're always going to be in a situation where someone says no not commissioning it or can you do this or can you change that but is there any indication Lisa when it becomes bullying? Well, they're the things we're, we're really going to be exploring on the panel. And um, we've got Darren Childs, who's the CEO of UKTV. They've won the best broadcast, I think the only broadcaster actually, to be in the Sunday Times list of best companies to work for. So we're going to be talking to him around, there is that power relationship, that dynamic, how do you maintain that healthy relationship where you're you're giving constructive criticism, that if there are performance issues, if, if the, you know, the show isn't what you're anticipating, that that's dealt with appropriately. You know, we're just getting lots of, of, of stories of people being sort of yelled at and screamed at or ignored the silent treatment it's all kinds of things but I think we're making very clear from the outset what is bullying let's define it and there are obviously grey areas and really you know at what point do you cross the line so it's we're obviously not going to come up with any simple solutions at the end of this but I what? think it's <laughs> I know outrageous isn't it I, I want takeaways. <laughs> buy a ticket solution. now you'll learn nothing <laughs> where, where, where is the event it's at Soho Theatre and it's on Friday the 8th of December starts at 9.30 with a free breakfast and uh, if you go to the tvfestival.com and come along Excellent stuff. Thank you for that. Right, let's start with news that the UK regulator Ofcom is to review children's programming. Prompting speculation, they'll mandate an increase in kids' TV on the BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5. Now, Paul, the BBC actually already have their Ofcom regulated children's hours dictated to them, don't they? And they exceed them. So let's park that. Well, except I think you should say the BBC's hours are quite small. I mean, this is all about the Digital Economy Act that actually now gives Ofcom the power to regulate the amount of hours of UK commissioned content on the other public broadcasters other than the BBC. Mm. On the BBC, it's only 400 hours for CBBC and 100 hours for CBBS, which is actually a very small number. If you run a children's channel, you need at least 500 hours of unique 
eight content a year to, to deliver 168 hours. That's the sort of conventional wisdom based on repeatability you can get away with. So they're already at quite small numbers, even at the BBC. So we shouldn't discount the BBC, although wow. this is all about I just, I mean, it seems to me like it's loads of original content. We're talking about UK-produced original content. I mean, on CBeebies, I mean, I've got a two-year-old. He doesn't know if he's watching the same episode four times in a row anyway. You know, when you talk about an hour of content, that's four or five or six shows. Well, 100 hours is still, if you think about it, 100 hours of the original content, 168 hours a week. You're talking about 50 or 60 repeats of the same episode on 100. Yeah. So I would think you might think that might be too many repeats. Yeah, they're all the same. They don't know the difference. They're, they're, they're uh, not <laughs> the same. Okay. But, the, <laughs> but the, critical issue, the critical issue here is the UK is very, very well supplied with children's services. Yes. The point is that most of them are from... Hollywood, Disney, Nickelodeon, Viacom, Cartoon Network from Turner. What matters is how much is made in the UK. And, and the issue is about what is produced in the UK. Okay, and that's so, what's declined. So really, the, the issue is whether you believe that it's important to have more UK production, which I personally believe is important. Okay. And Lisa, do you think that should then include Channel 5, which does some with Milkshake, and Channel 4, which I think does none now? I do, yes. I think, you know, they... They have some responsibilities, you know, with, within their remit um, to provide this. And, and spending has halved in the last decade from, from those broadcasters. So I, I do think there's, there's a real lack. And given the, the rise of online services and, and YouTube is, is clearly a big one there, where are children in the UK having sort of their culture and themselves and, and kind of British values, I guess, reflected? I mean, my speaking personally, my children just watch American cartoons and it sort of does drive you mad because it's like please watch Blue Peter and then you know some you know you know what's going on in this country and I don't feel there's enough at all and I think it's really worrying because for broadcasters you want them to grow up with your channel and having some affinity to that channel so we did a session at Edinburgh and we asked some young teenagers to give us a word to associate with the different broadcasters you know BBC it was news boring channel four was films and then YouTube was exciting fun snapchats friends stalking uh, slightly worrying but you know there was such engagement and the, the volume of stuff that they're watching on YouTube is, is incredible I think sort of just looking at the kids BAFTAs you know it's the first time that an online channel has won channel of the year so TrueTube winning. TrueTube now I'd never heard of TrueTube tell us about them. They're a um, educational video on demand service they actually had many entries in in several categories they won actually four of the six categories nominated you know I agree they sort of feel like they've come from nowhere you absolutely stormed it at the awards. Um, They sound like the sort of thing that wins awards that no one actually watches Paul. That's not quite true. Well, let's I mean, make a drama about terrorism for 13-year-olds, but who's actually going to watch it? How, 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 how silly. In a nutshell, that's basically it, isn't I it? I mean, look, Lisa is right. I mean, if you ask kids 4 to 15, what is your favourite brand? If you ask that of kids in the UK, what is your favourite brand? The one that comes top is YouTube. You know, it's not Disney, it's not the BBC, it's, it's YouTube by miles. And why do kids love it? Well, it's partly driven by the fact that kids have now all got access to mobile phones or to tablets, and they can now watch YouTube whenever they like, free of charge at point of access. They haven't got to get access to a TV remote, they haven't got to have pay TV. And also, YouTube's been really good at identifying young presenters, if you like influence, or if, if you want to use that word, young presenters who really engage with them, you know, content that actually talks their language, doesn't talk down to them, which 
which they feel is theirs and they own, and it's not their mum and dad's. And every generation wants that. If you think back to when you were a kid, you wanted the the, the music that was your music, not your mum and dad's music. That's that's how kids are, and YouTube does that very very well. In a completely and so I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised we've got a YouTube winner now. Whether this particular channel is going to go on and continue to be a huge player, a different issue. But you know, don't underestimate YouTube for kids. But it matters, doesn't it? They're not regulated. It does, but I, I mean, I think looking at the kind of things that are being produced here... Well, you I'm know, not talking it's... about TrueTube necessarily. Okay. I mean, YouTube, it matters that they're not regulated. Yeah, yeah. It matters that there aren't... Essentially, as a parent, you don't necessarily have control over what the advertisements are that your kids are going to see. You don't know what's been placed in there as a product. You don't yeah. know what political messages are going to come through. That, that's true. And, and, you know, fake news. And we were even looking at something, and you know, and the, the sort of, you know, Holocaust denial and those sorts of stories coming up. You sometimes feel like unless you're sitting with your children, you can say, that's not true. Don't read that. You know, uh, yeah, I agree. I think I think their strength is the interactivity as well you know the the fact that you're not just a passive audience i think the children absolutely love to engage with those channels and and they they can recommend things you know youtube creators will often say to fans what do you want and then they'll they'll produce it so it gives a certain sort of empowerment i think to children and and they just don't get that from tv just on the issue about youtube and regulation the c21 media futures conference this week was on and there was a lot of debate about youtube and in fact the bbc are using youtube a great deal to promote their shows i mean they've just won hey dougie but they're using uh, at the back end of the bafta for best preschool show for the second year running which is a great show it is a great show but they are using youtube to promote their shows not only in the uk but also particularly with bbc worldwide and the bbc are thinking very carefully because there's been all sorts of negative conversations about inappropriate advertising you know when you search you may not pull up what you want to see you think it's Peppa Pig and it's going to be something entirely different I think Google are doing a lot of work to try and improve this but it is a a concern for parents which is why you know the regulated channels like the BBC are for many parents the first choice in the UK Okay, sticking with online viewing let's talk about Amazon who've announced a new version of Lord of the Rings who thought there was any more material in that? Seriously. <laughs> the Hobbit was six hours long. Anyway, this time it's being played out as a multi-series. Was, was it three, nine hours? Three movies. Was it three nine parts of three hours. I did see all of them. I've um, seen them all many times. <laughs> They're very good too. Okay. Well, you're obviously in the market for hundreds of hours more, which is good uh, because they've commissioned a multi-series TV show uh, set before the original trilogy. So that's what post-Hobbit pre-fellowship. It's very confusing, isn't it? Um, As part of Amazon Prime membership. So you'll be able to stream this. And Lisa, I guess this is Amazon's attempt to do... Game of Thrones. Absolutely. They're not the only one. Everyone is looking for a version of HBO's Game of Thrones. It's such a cluttered market. It's 500 unscripted series. How do you stand out? That's with a huge pre-existing global franchise that's well-loved and and hugely successful. Tapping into that pre-existing fan base makes a lot of sense. They've tried some original content and on Amazon they've actually had to cancel quite a few series they just haven't cut through mm. so you know it does make sense strategically even if your heart sinks slightly of like ugh, you know more of you know you'd like to see something completely different wouldn't you a sort of stranger things or something but I can totally see why they're doing it well this is it isn't it Paul because Roy Price has left Amazon Studios now and there were the allegations of harassment and so on behind that but part of what he brought, which is similar to what we saw at Netflix with Orange is the New Black, is is he brought shows like Transparent, which actually wouldn't get commissioned on a mainstream channel and were quite interesting for a kind of sort of bookish... Man in the High Castle, you know, another example. Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of alternative audience. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings isn't that, is it? I mean, it's a super mainstream. Every channel in the UK would commission this if they could afford it. 
Well, Netflix have still got the march on the best original dramas. I mean, they're still finding the really interesting things and continuing to commission at a rate that is quite extraordinary. And, and you know, the commissioning process has changed. It used to be they wanted to have a co-production major broadcaster on board. They're now commissioning 13-hour series on a two-million budget per episode just off a script and a treatment for 13 eps. They don't even want to see a pilot now. That's, that's how bold Netflix are being. They are extremely tough on their commissioning executives. You know, they they look at all the data. If you don't get a second season, probably you will also be leaving as well as the show. Amazon have yet to have that level of success. So this is a slightly safe bet for Amazon, I would say. I'm sure it's going to help them. But as as Lisa says, they've yet to find the the, the killer or or killer series which are going to get that binge viewing. It was interesting, uh, again, at this event this week, Netflix were talking about how they measure success. And the quicker you binge on something, the more they they rate it. So if 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 you download load and you watch it within 24 hours that's like slam dunk yeah we love that but you know if you if you wait every week that's actually not quite so good mm. so you know it's got to be so compelling you cannot put it down and amazon have yet to really find that and it's interesting actually youtube are now also getting into scripted and they've just appointed a new head of drama um i think they're going they're planning sort of three dramas for next year again you know huge amount of competition massive budgets will they be picking sort of similar you know, franchises that are pre-existing, are they going to go more original? We, we sort of got a hint that they perhaps wouldn't go as dark as perhaps some of the Netflix series have been sort of certainly no gratuitous darkness is, is the message we got apart from, uh, you know, little insight actually into what is planned, but something else for Amazon to consider really. It's interesting, isn't it, how these extant brand franchises are being bought up and used because some of them aren't as big as Lord of the Rings. I mean, Fargo, for example... It's a pretty niche, you know, award-winning, but pretty niche Coen Brothers film from the 90s. You wouldn't think that would make a multi-episode TV series, but it does because it just gives you any recognition to tap people in for that first episode. And it was a great idea. And, you know, the the TV adaptation was very well written. Martin Freeman in it as well. So, you know, really, really good. Um, I mean, the writing is everything. Of course it is. I mean, I watch a huge amount of of stuff now online. And, you know, the trouble is you watch something and you you sort of commit to the first episode. But if it's not good enough, do you stick with it? You don't, do you? You go, I'll try something else. So it's got to be well written. Otherwise, you know, there's another series you can look at. You do find your attention focused on the first five minutes, literally now, don't you, of the pilot? Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also sustaining the series, let alone the episode and and I'm getting increasingly frustrated that you get to the end of the 13 parts and it's actually not resolved and then you have to watch the second series and you just think come on it's just you know I have a life here can you just get to the end of this story I really feel like I'm going to start watching films at least you know hour and a half you're done yeah (laughs) part of that is because when of course they commissioned the first season they don't know whether they're going to get a second season have you seen Mindhunter just, oh, I'm, just I'm in that at that. the moment. Be careful. Okay. I'm halfway through. Really good. Um, I, I know they're all serial killers it, already. It, but It leaves you with a cliffhanger at the end. And does you go, it? Oh, my God, I want more. But, of yeah. course, there's a second season now. I'm, well, I'm excited about it. Right, let's stick with uh, our American overlords and talk about Time, Inc. They've been sold to another U.S. corporation, the company which publishes Time magazine, of course. But uh, U.K. titles, including the NME and Marie Claire, was bought for just under $3 billion. Paul, who has bought Time, Inc. for $3 billion? This is a US company called Meredith Corporation. They've done this because it's great brands. You know, it's not really about buying the physical printed product. This is about building an online community and aggregating brands and about scale. So, you know, NME and Style Magazine and Wallpaper, Horse and Hound, these all live together. And of course, these are all about... Shooting Gazette. Shooting Gazette. Well, that's a big one. It's my favourite. 
<laughs> it's about super serving niche communities and doing it you know really really in a totally focused way and this is going to give them more scale and enable them of course therefore to monetize a bigger bigger online community and they needed to do it because i mean you know publishing is a is a really challenged business and they if you look at the the numbers in august all the weeklies are down. Look was down 90, yeah, 35% of the 24. I think half recorded a double figure fall in sales year on year. And then in June, they put 111 journalists at risk of redundancy. So it is an enormous struggle. But like Paul says, it's, it's about capitalising online and, and sort of, you know, evolving the business. Time is one of those companies, though, that seems endlessly to be bought and sold. I mean, most famously with Warner, and then there was AOL Time Warner, wasn't there, which was a bit complicated. They've only lasted four years purely as a periodicals business. Does it mean basically that if you just do print, you're fucked? I don't think print on its own is going to survive. No, I just don't. I mean, I don't know whether you, Lisa, I don't know what the timeline of that is, but the future is clearly online, isn't it? There's no question about that. It's just a question of when, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I think a lot of publishers are expanding their businesses into events, into data and intelligence services. I think the days of you just have your weekly magazine are well and truly over. All right, let's talk about uh, radio now. And it was the APAs last week, the Audio Production Awards, the Radio Independent Group's awards bash, celebrating the best indie producers and companies. Now, Paul, the winner of the biggest award, Indie of the Year, uh, went not to one of the big indie radio beasts like Whistledown or TBI Media or Seven Digital, but the Prison Radio Association. Uh, Now, are they the true tube of the... (laughs) Of the radio industry. Well, I think they're um, a bit like... Can't have tru- that many listeners, let's be honest. Well, they're, they're have pretty much to be captive, incarcerated. They're captive <laughs> listeners. They're, they're very much captive. Um, I think that Prison Radio Association have for a long time been producing really, really excellent content. And I've judged their awards um, on several occasions in, in the past. And I think what makes them so compelling is this. Um, you know, radio is about storytelling, as is TV, but radio is all about the voice. And when you listen to some of these programs, they really do emotionally affect you. You know, I've, I've listened to some of their stuff and been in tears with people telling in completely honest and completely transparent way personal testimonies about their lives. And, you know, you, you, you wouldn't do this, but if you wanted to dramatise some of this stuff, it would make incredible dramas for Amazon and Netflix. But these are people who've had... Um, lives you couldn't imagine you know we live in a privileged bubble I guess lives you couldn't imagine and they're telling them honestly and some of these programs are just single voice just people talking and they're beautifully put together and you know people say you know radio is theatre of the mind and all of that stuff but prison radio association do it really well they're very well organised they're nice guys they've always done well at the Sony Radio Academy Awards they've always entered stuff and they've won pretty well because they just um, deliver simple but ultimately emotional and compelling radio. So not a surprise, and I congratulate them. Okay, but isn't that a problem, Lisa? If Paul says, here's what makes them great, they make amazing radio where individuals with incredible stories tell you their story, isn't it pointing to a fault in UK radio that you have to look to prison radio to find that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, I, I totally wasn't aware of this, but looking at the, you know, what the judges have said, I think the first thing I'm going to do is go, go and listen to this. It sounds incredible. Go They've, and commit a crime. Yes, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you can listen. <laughs> um, it says it's producing some of the most creative and diverse audio on the planet, making them solid gold. I'm talking about the, you know, ambition and the remarkable, challenging stories, live events, music shows, docs, everything. And, and the diverse range of voices 
and stories that are rarely heard on air. Um, and I just think that's, you know, it's so important and it's it does feel really tragic, actually, that mm. it's restricted to a service like this. I mean, you know, where are you getting the diverse voices in television? Where You know, where else are you getting it in radio? Um, you know, it should be something that the whole nation is, is being reflected um, in some way. You know, obviously that was a big big point of Jon Snow's McTaggart making everyone feel really um, you know very emotional in the room the sort of disconnect between the media elite and you know the people out there and it sounds like these guys are, are really solving that. And the other point about this is it's really important in their rehabilitation you know you you I've, I've met a few of the um, prisoners who've contributed and they find that doing the radio really helps them to reconnect back to the world and there's now real evidence that actually this has helped them to get back into society after they come out and they finish their sentence so I think that's a really important part of this as well as producing stuff that's amazing to listen to yeah it is genuinely a well-deserved uh, win I should point out as well I was being flippant obviously but I should point out they do make uh, production for the BBC as well, don't they, and others, they Prison do. Radio Association. So they're a proper, fully fledged indie. You don't actually literally have to be in prison to listen, but it helps. <laughs> Well, media podders, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm on Newman Street in the heart of London Soho, I like to stop by Run VT. Not only do they have excellent acoustic facilities, as you can hear right now and throughout the show, but they also help a huge range of production companies make some seriously good telly as well. If you're looking for a post-production house, may I recommend our friends at Run VT. You can find them online at Run VT. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. .tv Time for some news in brief now, or as I'm going to call this section, Ollie Man Tries to Understand. Uh, Paul and Lisa are still with me, and we're going to be doing press regulation in a second. Ugh. Let's start with net neutrality. Uh, the US regulator, the FCC, has proposed removing safeguards on net neutrality, the principle whereby users access all websites and internet services under the same conditions. Paul, explain what my script means, please. 
Well, I'm going to let Lisa talk about the editorial issue here <laughs> of what it means. Well, there's, there's people saying this is going to actually make certain websites unavailable. And of course, the whole point about the internet is it's free. People who've tried to charge for the stuff on the internet have struggled because, you know, the internet is about democratisation and about access and, and so on. And I think that's a very good thing. But what I'll talk about here is what this means for the streamers since we're talking about Netflix and Amazon and so on. But what the, is it at all? Well, the, the, the issue is who pays for the bandwidth? Okay. Um, and should you actually uh, regulate that to ensure there is equal access to, to pipes? You know, there's all the cable companies, of course, who are massively investing in, in bandwidth. There's um, uh, people like BT in this country who are putting cables onto the ground, which is why the roads are dug up all the time. Mm-hmm. If people are investing in that sort of stuff, should they get a return on that investment? You know, what's your view on that? Now, should it be How that would actually, that look? How would a return on their investment well, look? Well, because what you do is if you're BT, you have, you know, BT Open Reach, much criticised, to mm-hmm. then licence that bandwidth to other third-party providers who then use that to host their own particular services. So the issue about net neutrality is should people like Netflix be charged for the bandwidth they use to distribute television to consumers or not? And what this is saying is no, they should not. So President Obama tried to uh, have net neutrality, have everyone on an equal playing field, uh, and that's what's being undone by the FCC now. So what are the repercussions for that in the UK then, Lisa? Uh, Presumably what it means is that we might be charged more as consumers for using the most popular video streaming websites, for example, and consumers don't like being charged for things. Everybody needs equal access to web services um, to be able to, to contribute to debate, to, to be able to access information. And, and, you know, why should some people be penalised and, and charge more? People can't afford that uh, sort of, you know, premium service that, that might be imposed. It doesn't sort of really feel that very democratic. Paul, do the big beasts actually like this or not? Do, do Google and Netflix want this? Because they might not want to be charged more, obviously, but they might prefer to be this on the number one streaming site so that it's easier to crush the competition. Um, no, their, their, their view is that uh, we don't want to be charged. We don't want to start paying for it. It's too complicated. It will raise prices. It will create all sorts of um, competition they don't want. They want to be judged on their service, so they don't want it. And their head offices in Luxembourg and Dublin are very clear on that. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about Ipso now. This is another thing that fries my brain. Uh, The UK press's own regulator, as opposed to the one that Leveson wanted, which we spent public money trying to establish, uh, have announced a new arbitration scheme aimed at resolving libel disputes without going through the courts. Lisa, can you explain this for me, please? Yes, essentially Ipsos launched a new low-cost libel disputes arbitration scheme. So what publishers are hoping from this is that it will finally kill off the threatened statutory press regulation. So the whole Leveson and Section 40 uh, sort of complications um, is, is hopefully going to prevent the crippling costs that news publishers feared, um, you know, forcing them to pay libel and privacy claimants' legal costs. Yeah, and that was irrespective of whether or not they win, wasn't it? That's right, yes. the, The criticism against Leveson's reforms was, yes, you know, if you're libeled or slandered, you can start arbitration for free, but if you lose... The papers still pay. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, win or lose—that's uh, it's your your cost. Um, but Ipso has slashed the costs to a nominal fifty pounds administration fee for claimants and a further fifty pounds to take the case to a full hearing. Well, that's so all right, isn't it? Pay is fifty pounds. pounds a, fifty yeah. pounds to the Sunday Mirror. What's wrong with that, Paul? Well, this is about the balance, isn't it, between ensuring that um, journalistic. Um, 
uh, intent is actually rewarded and that journalists are encouraged to go out and find original stories and uncover wrongdoing and so on. And the, the costs of being sued if indeed you get the story wrong. And of course, you don't want journalists not to be producing original journalism. You absolutely do. But on the other hand, for small publications, it becomes onerous. And so, of course, what happens is they become risk averse and they stop doing it. So this seems to me to be a sensible suggestion. The problem, of course, is the government's in this bind in that it's sort of saying, we've had Leveson, we've got to do something about it, we can't ignore it. This seems to me to be a neat sidestep and solution for both parties. But I guess the proof will be in the in the pudding, as they say. Except two things. One, as far as I can work out, the publishers get to choose whether or not they permit particular legal actions to go through to, to their board. So obviously, if they think they're going to lose, they'll just say, not that one. And two, not everyone's in Ipso. I mean, notably not the FT or The Guardian. Yes, I was sort of slightly concerned about that as well. So let's let's pick and choose the ones we think we're gonna we're gonna win. Yeah, yeah. it's um, like on Parents' Day when you book in slots with all your favourite teachers. Do you know what I mean? Like my <laughs> PE teacher never met my parents. You know, the advantage is low cost access to justice. Big tick. Hopefully, news publishers can remain in business. But I think, as Paul says, it, it is that balance. And, and, I, and I guess and it isn't just about, you know, investigative stories. Um, you know, it's, it's all the sort of, you know, rubbish printed about celebrities. And, um, you know, so it, there, are, there are a lot of issues um, with, with that. And, you know, The Guardian, FT and Evening Standard are allowed to join the scheme. So apparently, so we'll see whether they do that. Let's talk about Soho. Uh, An iconic Soho building, just a stone's throw from where we are actually, is being redeveloped. It's causing some concern uh, in the media. This is the film house. Uh, Lisa, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, it's it's this sort of, you know, lovely Soho vibe of creativity and, and you know, these, these sort of small creative companies um, being subsumed by some massive property development. So a seven-storey hotel, 176 bedrooms, um, and, uh, you know, in, meaning the demolition of um, the iconic film house and it's, you know, it's beautiful facades. Well, so. not the facades crucially. So they keep the facades, oh, don't sorry. they Paul? They just gut the building. And they're building behind the facades. And of course on the facade it has got film house in stone on the front. Mm. And I've been in there and seen screenings. Uh, and I mean look, I can I can sort of see why you need a hotel there, but I think it's a bit of a shame what's happening to Soho, not only in terms of the media industry, but also the whole sort of vibe of Soho. It's become very gentrified, hasn't it? You go around sort of Peter Street and and Broadwick Street now, and it's actually all high-end restaurants and cafes. And I don't want to bring the porn industry back, but I do think there was something about that whole sort of slightly, you know, sleazy porn media Soho thing. And actually Soho risks, I think, becoming like any other part of London. And so for me, I think this is negative. I'd prefer to keep uh, a bit of the old Soho and certainly keep all the post-production businesses there and and try and make Soho and continue to make Soho a slightly sort of different part of London with a different feel and different vibe. And it's becoming a bit too corporate and too many big brands in there and a bit samey to me. And for people who don't work in TV production, Lisa, just explain to us what it is about Soho. That I mean, why put a post-production house in Wardour Street? It doesn't make sense. It costs a lot of money. Why not put it in Wembley? Well, uh, I, it just has always been here. And, it, and it's it has had that sort of, you know, I guess you know, creative seedier edge or, or whatever, you know, there's, there's been a sort of, um, you know, a certain culture within, within Soho that, you know, I think, you know, rents were a lot cheaper and it meant everybody could come here and, you know, you, it's central, you know, and if, if broadcasters are based all over the place, there's something about being in the heart of Soho 
within this creative community, it's all easy. You've got your post house, your editing facilities, your you know your sound places, all, all together. And it's and it's sort of you know having to then spread that out and go further afield, or um, you know just just taking away the the heart and soul, I think, of what has been a very long established you know post production community. There's also a really practical issue, and that is you can walk to all these different places. It's really good. You can walk, you can grab your coffee, you can go in there. I mean, only last week I went to. I mean, and actually behind these doors, there's lots of amazing little theatres. You know, which will seat 25 people, and mm. you can go in there and you can do a screening. And I went to one last week. In fact, it was by an agency who was celebrating 30 years of doing movie images. What they do is they do the the posters. The that they use to promote uh, movies. And this agency's in London, in Soho, and they've done Star Wars, they've done Raids of the Lost Ark. And in fact, we had a presentation and, and, and drinks and food, and then they played us in the screening room, the original Raids of the Lost Ark from 1980. And we saw it, you know, there in there. And it was glorious. And that's in Soho. And you walk out and there you are on the street in the middle of Soho. And I think it'd be a real shame if we lost that. But it's market forces, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's it, the media industry is a victim of its own success here. I, I was talking to, a, I went to do a voiceover at a company that used to be based in Soho the other day. They're now in Fitzrovia. And the bloke told me, the sound engineer, that it is cheaper for them to rent in Fitzrovia than it is in Soho. That, mm. That's that's because uh, the media industry made it more glamorous. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, I, I just think, you know, I don't know, it's like on an emotional level, there's just something about the the kind of culture that comes from creative people that, that kind of makes Soho what it is and, and London what it is really and if it, the whole thing becomes gentrified and you could be anywhere in the world and you know what makes it distinctive why would people come here why would people want to work here if it's just the same as everywhere else and you know it's kind of same if you look at, at Hackney and Dalston which used to be you know real artist communities and now again that's become gentrified and the artists have had to move out what made those places cool in the first place were the artists and the and the interesting people and everything that they're doing there and now suddenly they're all having to move out to Essex or something so you 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 know you're losing a certain you know unique culture and creativity and sensibility of a a community I couldn't agree more I mean if I may summarise it's basically all Soho House's fault (laughs) if they open a branch of Soho House anywhere near you it's over move (laughs) Uh, right Uh, let's briefly talk about the changes to Five Lives schedule I say briefly because I don't like to spend a lot of time celebrating the success of one of my exact contemporaries Uh, but Paul Emma Barnett has uh, been given an extra day a week she's doing four days a week now yeah I mean Emma Barnett's great I'm a huge fan I'm really delighted for her so she's going to be Monday to Thursday now 10 until 1 instead of Wednesday to Friday I have to say to the Five Lives schedulers please can you do Monday to Friday this nonsense of people doing Wednesday Thursday Thursday, Friday, now Monday to Thursday. Why can't you do five days? Here, Put here. Emma on Fridays as well. But I'm look, Emma is great. More time for Emma is something to celebrate. And, and congratulations on her and to you, Emma, for getting an extra day. But please give her five days. Okay, can I let you into something as well that I heard about LBC doing their weird Sunday to Thursday thing? Apparently the reason Clive Bull and Lenny and Colin start on Sunday rather than Monday night is because Richard Park listens on the drive back from Norfolk and he likes them. Well, that's the best reason I can possibly think of. <laughs> Absolutely right. I was Richard, hi. By a senior executive at Global. Uh, right, finally, just before the media quiz, uh, after complaints in recent years about inaudible dialogue in BBC drama, the Blue Planet 2 team have taken no chances when mixing the sound for the series. Lisa, what have Blue Planet been doing differently? Well, they've they've ditched all the high technology big studios and music suites for a bog standard little telly to listen to Blue Planet on and make sure that the sound 
can be heard that the music isn't overpowering because there has been so many complaints to the BBC about dramas and mumbling and, you know, music dominating things. So um, they're, they're just sort of putting themselves in the ears of the viewer and um, getting... Yeah, uh, makes sense. Getting, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, you know, sort of hearing what it's like in, in people's living rooms. Because it's sort of easy to dismiss and it's fun to dismiss on social media all the complaints that get written into the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail's TV sections from old biddies saying, I can't hear what's on the telly. But it... It obviously does affect a lot of people, it really doesn't it? It's all my parents talk about, and it's somehow my <laughs> fault because I've got something to do with TV. So can you do something about this, Lisa? OK, I'll try. <laughs> so do, you, do you think it is that uh, sound levels are being edited in high-tech post-production suites in Soho that we were just uh, lauding, and actually uh, people have lost touch with how most people are watching it coming out of a slightly old Sony box in the corner of a room? I don't, I'm not sure I know the technical sort of um, uh, reason. I mean, you think that you know you need professional mixers and equipment to um, to actually do to do this, um, but I think it's it's just testing it, I guess, isn't it? In um, or whether is this just a publicity well, stunt my, to my, say you know? My, so I don't to, my view on this would be, and and I would say, look, radio people have known this for years. Mm. You know, whenever you mix a radio commercial, whenever you mix a radio documentary, you do it on small speakers as well. And we always had little, small, tiny little speakers that replicated the tranny because it does sound different. You lose the hi-hat, you lose the bass. And if you mix on huge, beautiful speakers in a great big Soho edit suite, it doesn't sound the same coming through on the television. Most people have just got a single speaker on their TV. TV speakers are still piss poor in terms of the total technology. They don't put money into the speakers at all. Um, and television executives don't really focus too much on the sound. They focus on the pictures. And hey, Blue Planet is a feast of gorgeous pictures. So I think it's exactly that. It's what Lisa says. You have to mix for people's living rooms. We've got the same issue now, of course, with HDTVs and that people are now not putting their sofas in the right places. Um, and people are actually sitting at the wrong distance away from uh, TVs. And with 4K coming in, it gets even more difficult. Unless you get the right distance away from the TV, you're not going to get the full benefits. So it does mean that you've got to start thinking about the ergonomics of your living room. But I'm delighted they're doing this. It's the right thing to do. And it's not just old people. I think a lot of people find it difficult because it's just not designed for the way we watch on TV. Yeah, you're right. It is something that people do in radio instinctively and something that the whole media could learn from, I think, Lisa, which is, you know, if you're if you're writing in print, print it out and read it. If you're making a radio show, listen to it in your headphones and walk about listening to it. I mean, it's basic, isn't it? But a lot of times people just don't do that. It is, yeah. You wonder, it's something so simple. Why haven't they done it before, really? Exactly. exactly. Uh, right, there is just time for our media quiz. And this week we have another in our mini-series highlighting the apologies publishers should have made. We call it Corrections and Clarifications. Uh, I'll give you the original headline from a story that turned out to be not entirely within the confines of reality. You simply just tell me who published it and why it was wrong. It's the best of three. You buzz in with your name. So, Lisa, you will say... Lisa. And Paul, you will say... Not Lisa. The winner gets the UK broadcast rights to that show that Meghan Markle's in. Here is story number one. Buzz in when you know who published it and why it was wrong. Watch the Earth. Live from space, Paul. This is The Independent. This is The Independent claiming they had um, video live from space, when in actual fact the video had been recorded in 2015. Correct. So they apologised and said it was down to human error. Yes, they aired this on their Facebook page, and many thousands of people joined in, and then the BBC pointed out that it was footage that was at least two years old. Uh, Lisa, can you see how that might happen? Well, human error. Could it Some... be possibly that these institutions have been pushed to get clickbait at the expense of quality journalism? Ooh. Great for Terry Verts. No one had heard of him before. Terry Verts. Terry Verts. He's the guy 
who did it. Well, no one heard of him before. Well. Now we all know Terry Verts. 180,000 views plus a couple of hundred of you. Uh, <laughs> here is story number two. Uh, gunshots fired as armed police officers surround Oxford Circus Station after lorry ploughs into pedestrians. Lisa. Lisa. Um, nothing of the kind happened. More fake news mm-hmm. from um, the Mail Online, or may actually tweets, I think, from the Mail, yes. um, suggesting that a lorry had ploughed into pedestrians when, in fact, that wasn't the case. And where did Mail Online find this incredible story? Oh, gosh. Um, it was from a tweet that itself was 10 days old. Oh, right. Okay. Right, I didn't yes. know either. Okay. Clearly. I don't feel too bad because Lisa didn't know either. <laughs> dare I say, in pursuit of sensationalism against quality journalism, uh, someone went searching Oxford Street rapidly on Twitter to find things to tweet, and they didn't notice that the tweet was 10 days old. Uh, right. Um, here it is. It's the tiebreak. You excited? Mm. Oh, very. I don't know about you, but I mean, it's it's palpable for me. Uh, here's story number three. The Tories have voted that animals can't feel pain as part of the EU bill, marking the beginning of our anti-science Brexit. Which publisher or institution? It's Farming UK, isn't it? Oh, you've got a buzz in with your name. Oh, sorry, Paul. Lisa, Lisa. Farming UK. Lisa. <laughs> Half a point to Lisa. Uh, you got the right story, but the wrong publication. It is The Independent again. Um, It transpired that the sentence on animal sentience was already dropped, as it was in UK law. And according to BuzzFeed, the Independence article about that was the most widely shared story on social media this year. Yeah, it just shows how actually uh, a story can go viral and you can completely lose control of the story, which you don't really think is a significant story, but actually became a very significant issue. And in fact, it resulted in the government's position on um, animal uh, sentience being misreported because of this guy called Daniel Wilde, who's a, a student who works with his dad at Farming UK. Okay. It's just further proof of how crazy we all are when it comes to animals. It's, you know, it's same in TV dramas and, a, you know, yeah. an animal dies Everyone's up in it's arms, a but point, a, a yeah. human, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, we love our animals more than our humans. <laughs> well, Paul, if we were playing for 50 bonus points on how to solve the problem in trust in journalism, you may have just edged it, but actually, Lisa, you were the winner there with one and a half points. Congratulations. <laughs> um, that is it for our show today. My thanks to Lisa and to Paul. You can get new episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. You can keep us on air all year round as well by taking out a voluntary subscription. Just a fiver a month can keep us afloat head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and give generously i've been ollie man the producer was matt hill the media podcast is a ppm production until next time bye-bye when you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year 100,000 mile limited warranty you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.